Before we get started, we just wanted to read a quick disclaimer. First and foremost, this is a comedy slash true crime podcast. We are a few guys who like to laugh and crack jokes. We understand the nature of the topic is very disheartening and grim, but our aim here is to bring to light these real-life situations so you, the listener, can be more aware of your surroundings and hopefully laugh alongside with us. We will not make jokes about the victims or the families impacted by the unfortunate situations, but we will make jokes about the perpetrator or anywhere we see fit. If you don't believe people should be joking about this subject, or if you are expecting a more serious retelling of the event, or if you do not like commentary and banter on the subject, then this is not the podcast for you. Hey! Welcome back, everybody! I'm Will. I'm Octavio. And I am Brian. And today, we're going to be covering D.B. Cooper. So, let's just jump right out of this plane and right into it. And join us in these bloodthirsty times. small scales what governments do in large one they are a product of the times and these are bloodthirsty times mm. Mm. yeah milky smooth baby mm, yeah yeah oh what oh this is oh, is this is this the new hire oh yeah yeah that's no that's richard oh yeah, that's R- richard, oh yeah we got him on retainer yeah, Richard, Richard the pianist. Um, yeah, so this is his band in the background. We just, uh, yeah, he's he's playing a nice little jam for us. Oh, is that Very why nice. he came up to us at the office and was like, "Hey, man, I could really use some extra scratch." You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah, this COVID yeah, thing's you know. got me out of work. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes you know people just need a little helping hand, and Richard the pianist here. You know, we decided to give him a little bit more extra work, so uh, we're going to be employing his band. Enjoy. Yeah, it was our people talk to his people, and uh, we got it all going. So yeah. I hope it works out for Richard here. Yeah. So, how was your guys' weekend? It was good, man. It was very good. Uh, got me a fresh fade. School's going pretty well, so it was work. Ooh, you got a fresh um, fade? Hell yeah, dude. Yeah, man, it got faded. <laughs> yeah. <man. laughs> you know you're still going to wear that beanie, though. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Dude. Like, <laughs> you, got yeah. this, you got this fresh cut G, but no one's going to know it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my security blanket, dude. Like, <laughs> I just got to have my beanie yeah, on. Yeah, let's, let's be real. Let's be real. <clears throat> dude, you guys, what's what's going on with you? Oh, man, I had fucking soccer today because mm. of COVID. We've been out for probably going on a year now, maybe a little mm-hmm. over a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And God damn, I'm walking around like a fucking baby giraffe. My legs <laughs> are jello. Well, yeah. yeah. Also, you're a year older, so you got the the knee pain going now. Oh, yeah, I'm 31. Yeah, happy birthday, yeah. buddy! Happy birthday, oh, thank Will! You. Oh, happy thank birthday. you. Thank you. We hope, we heard you enjoy. We hope you enjoyed that meat in your mouth on Friday. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I had more yeah. meat in my mouth than I could ever want. It was a special yeah, we, birthday meat. We yeah. we got him intoxicated and gave him a bunch of meat. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually meat. it actually took a lot of like coordinating because we don't live in the same states. Like even our group of friends were all separated, so we had to communicate behind Will's back to like someone's got to get him a bottle of alcohol, someone's got to get him food, someone's got to <laughs> yeah, get him like dessert or something. Yeah, we we yeah. had charts with lines going everywhere. We're like, all yeah. right, uh, three p.m. We're gonna do this here. All right. <laughs> oh man. So, but yeah, uh, I, yeah man, we're, happy birthday to you, man. Thank you. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed yeah. it. Dude. Yeah. So, hey, you want to get started? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's man, go take, ahead and get this, this is, started. This is all you, man. So take it away. Let's let's do this. 
So those that were thinking, hey, I want to hear more of Will's silky smooth chocolate-covered strawberry voice. Mm, mm. And yes, chocolate. I'm talking to you, Steph. Oh, did you know Steph Curry? Steph, you don't know Steph. I know Steph. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you guys are fucking Tell- welcome because Tell her I said hi. I will. Hi. Because <laughs> uh, this episode's all me, baby. And right. on this week's episode, we're going in a completely different direction, like south, like uncharted territory shit, and a classic who done it, you know. Steering clear of the grisly, bloody shit for a little bit. And yeah, I won't be stone. talking. Yeah, I won't be talking that much because there's no murder. So. No, <laughs> no murders here. Just a, just a who the fuck did it? <clears throat> a classic who done it. And so today we're going to be covering the infamous DB Cooper, oh, which mm-hmm, to this day remains the only unsolved air piracy in commercial aviation history. Now I'm going to set the mood for you a little bit and bring you back to when the time, when the time took place, when the crime took place, 1971, Mr. I'm not a crook in office. That was really good. That was really good. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Dick Nixon himself. Uh, Houses. Yeah. Tricky Dick houses were $25,000. The average annual income was about $10,600. And the price of gas was 40 cents a gallon. Jesus, man. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Well, what, Damn. with inflation, what does all that mean? I don't know, bro. You're asking questions that I don't, I'm not smart enough to know. the. I don't have the answers for those. Okay, well, I at least know the, the 40 cents. I think 40 cents today is about $1.34. Okay. So still, even then. Yeah, still. So. Wait, let me double check that. You, you keep talking. I'll yeah. Look. Okay. Double check. Fact check. Because right now, I think gas is like four forty over here in S- Southern California. Four forty over there. Four forty. Jesus, dude. Over here, it's like three bucks. Well, something I'm, like that. Well, under that, I'm like two twenty. Oh man. Yeah. Well, because dirty south. <laughs> but it's <clears throat> over here. It's freaking robbery, man. It's, it's highway robbery, charging that yeah. amount of money for gas. I think I paid work when I, when I left um, Los Angeles the day I left to come here, I think I paid $5 and 40 cents a gallon. Wow. But yeah, but there was a time where it, it, the prices spiked considerably and then they end up working them, themselves back down. <clears throat> but I digress. Now, some other notable events from 1971 would be the 26th amendment getting passed which had lowered the voting age to 18 years old. Intel released the world's first microprocessor, the 4004, which was kind of big. It was huge, right? Yeah, huge. And we were on the tail end of the Vietnam War, which in 1971, 60% of the American population was totally against the war. Oh, and, um, sorry. It was $3.20. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, for inflation. In yeah, in today's money. Okay, so it's good for you guys, but in SoCal, we're above the, uh, mm-hmm. we trend a little bit higher. <clears throat> and actually on March, uh, March of 1971, there was a uh, famous uh, march that took place 
Washington, D.C. with 500,000 anti-Vietnam War protesters. So 1971 was a big year. And it doesn't surprise me that this major unsolved crime would take place. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of shit going on. Yeah, there's a lot in the 70s, late 60s. Man, that yeah. was gnarly. <clears throat> also, flying in the 70s was insane. They would turn these massive 747s into nightclubs in the sky. Yeah. Where the mm-hmm. hostesses in the hot pants, <laughs> it was an actual commercial for Southwest. The hostesses really? in the hot pants. Yes. Really? Yes. That's, man, what a time. They'd be walking around serving drinks in hot pants. Because 70s, bro. 70s, man. <clears throat> and Pan Am, which is now a defunct airline, uh, it, they would be the first ones to use uh, the 747 for commercial flight at that time because it was a big-ass plane. And they were so massive, they had a spiral staircase to get up to the second deck because there was two floors on an airplane, which isn't surprising now, but back then it was. It's like an Airbus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not the only thing named Pan Am with the big ass. <laughs> okay. Cyberpunk reference. Cyberpunk. Nice. Yep. Oh, Cyberpunk. <laughs> right. I was like, Pan Am. Where do I know that from? Yeah. <laughs> so now the um, commercial flight was super competitive back then. And Southwest Airlines, in order to keep up with the competition, were actually giving away full-size bottles of premium alcohol to every customer that bought a ticket. What? So you buy a ticket on Southwest to go fly where the fuck you want to go, and you get a bottle of alcohol. For the flight? Like, what if it's like a 20-minute flight? What no, if they, the what if Wouldn't no. it be great if they forced you to finish it the whole... Like, you only have <laughs> nope, this flight to finish it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm just going to Vegas. It's 45 minutes. <laughs> well, finish it. Do it. Chug it. <laughs> Chug it. <clears throat> and then we had uh, Southern Airways, who would call themselves the route of the aristocrat, and had a slogan that nobody's second class on Southern... It's a airline that was from the South, if you didn't know. <laughs> Anyways, the booze was free-flowing. They served champagne in coach, and they even had collectible shot glasses. <laughs> so you, you, yeah, you'd get off the plane, cool. and they'd give you a collectible shot glass, and they would constantly change, so they turn into actual like collector's items. What a time. Yeah. I know, right? And so every airline was trying to outdo their competition. And they had some really crazy-ass schemes. American Airlines actually removed 60 seats from their luxury fleet of 747s to accommodate a large lounge complete with piano and a bar. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> where uh, we picked up Richard the Pianist. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. play on one of, those, yeah. uh, one of those bars. Yeah. And Continental, not to be outdone, would equip their fleet with pubs, which would include arcade games, and you guessed it, free booze. Free booze. Yeah, that's like, what I was going to say. I was going to say free booze. Okay, I mean, free booze. There used to be a limit. But before this, it was a two drink maximum on flights. And then they took that away from the industry. They basically got rid of it. And now it's just as much as your liver could handle. That's now we're talking. <laughs> anything, anything goes pretty now much. Now we're talking. Yeah. yeah. It was fun. And man, would I have loved to fly in the 70s. No cramped seating. A full fucking bar in the galley. You just walk out and you're like, sweet, I'm gonna sit here for my two hour flight and just get wasted. I got water beds. <laughs> but 
there were some flaws in the flight industry in the 70s, including a ton of hijacked planes. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> dude, actually, this dude, this dude, this time period, <laughs> this, dude. this dude was nuts, dude. Um, look, no. at that, look at this dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, this time period was nuts when it came to air travel, like straight up. The, this time was so insane that a period of about four years from 1968 to 1972, there were no less than 130 different hijackings. Jesus and, Christ. And it came to be known as the golden age of skyjacking. Yeah. <laughs> in those days, in those days, it was called skyjacking. Skyjacking. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go skyjack real quick. <laughs> use the bathroom. It means something different now. Yeah. You use the bathroom yeah. for that? I don't use the bathroom. Just... <laughs> it's skyjacking my seat. <laughs> um, <laughs> most skyjackers, though, uh, they wanted to escape to Cuba for some reason. I, I don't know what the appeal was, but uh, they would commandeer a plane just to land at the Cuban airport in Havana, and then have Fidel Castro's people escort them to a Spanish citadel. Like Castro only what? let these yeah Castro only let these planes land in Cuba at all because he thought it was humiliating humiliating to the United States and also he charged a fuck ton of money to get the planes back like hey America you want your planes back you know, <laughs> he'd hold the plane hostage you gotta play yeah. the you gotta pay the plane tax man the plane damn but uh other than that Castro could not give any less fucks about the skyjackers he thought they were despicable and uh, Castro actually sent them to the Citadel to be interrogated and it be accused of being a cia operative so it was you know it's pretty brutal i'm sure you know mm -hmm. so eventually yeah, you though got, you got communist uh cuba yeah and then you have the americans flying in and they're like oh yeah you're welcome here but first let me rip out your fingernails and see if you're a cia <laughs> operative <laughs> even that seriously that's pretty much all it was because Castro did not care about these people he just thought it was humiliating to the united states so he allowed it to happen yeah but eventually all of them were cleared obviously there's just people skyjacking and want the quote-unquote freedoms of Cuba. And uh, they ended up living in a little skyjacker town. There were so many people that they just had their own town, and they were given wow. tiny rooms, and they lived just with other skyjackers, and that's it. It was just a little community of their own. That's how many wow. people were there. So, yeah, the the golden age was a tough time for airlines, and, and skyjackings are dime a dozen, dude. So what makes today's story stand out? Well, it has everything to do with the mysterious man in a nice suit and a skinny tie, who would go down in infamy, known only as DB Cooper. <laughs> so the question is, who is DB Cooper? <clears throat> DB Cooper was actually the name the media used when covering this incident. The actual uh, pseudonym was Dan Cooper. And this incident would begin on Thanksgiving Eve on November 24th in 1971, an unidentified businessman would approach the Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International and identify himself only as Dan Cooper, purchase a ticket with Cashola, that was the thing, for a one-way flight to Seattle, flight 305, which was roughly a 30-minute flight. And the plane he would be boarding was a Boeing 727-51, but now they're known as the 727-100s, if you know anything about airlines. I know so much about airlines, dude. It's crazy. I wish I didn't know this much about airlines. Yeah, if you know about airlines. <laughs> okay, sorry. Now, uh, when I first started researching this, uh, and they said his name was actually Dan Cooper, I was like, dude, like, just I didn't know what to think, because I was like, isn't his name D.B. Cooper? Like, I'd never heard of Dan Cooper before. 
But yeah, turns out that's actually what he told the desk girl um, when he signed his name in. So this guy, he walks up all aloof, just cool as can be, and asks about a flight to Portland. And then the lady's all like, yeah, sign your name here. And he wrote in big blocky letters, Dan Cooper. And the lady's all like, you Dan Cooper? He said, yeah, I'm Dan Cooper. And that was it. That was it. Yeah. She yep, was like, okay, me. sounds good to me. I cause... am Dan Cooper. <laughs> it's like, what? And she was like, yeah, that, that sounds good to me because this is 1971 and I don't need your ID. I don't need you to pro- provide proof of who you are. You know, whatever you tell me, that's who you are yep. or any other details about yourself at all. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you don't know? care. Yeah, just sign your name. <laughs> so, so after he says the name, the lady says $20, please, because that's how much it costs, $20 to fly wow. on an airplane. So With 40 Cooper, cents a gallon <laughs> for gas. So yeah, we're... <laughs> Yeah, so Cooper pays the twenty dollars uh, to board a plane, and he bought the ticket five minutes before because you know you don't need to be checked in or anything, just five minutes. And so he got on the plane with only a name and a smile. And if you're wondering, twenty dollars today is about one hundred and thirty-one dollars. Oh, thanks for that math. Yeah, I was so, wondering. Um, I imagine he just gives a sideways glance to the desk lady, and then like tips his hat with like a weird smile. He's just like. Can I get, are you sure I can get on? Are you sure? Are you sure? And he was like, Emilio. Emilio. <laughs> tips his and hat. He tipped like, his hat this. like this. Oh, uh, <laughs> if only you were there. Oh, uh, if only you were there. And I was like, Emilio. Uh, so he's just like, yeah, so I can just get on? Like, you sure? Like, we good? She's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Dan Cooper. Get on. So Dan Cooper would board the 727 and take a seat towards the very back of the plane which at the time had about what 35 37 passengers on it and that was mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. Yep. yeah and the, wow. the the 727 was a medium range passenger jet which held a flight crew of three could carry up to 131 passengers and powered by three pratt and whitney turbofan engines oh do they use a pratt and whitney's for these pratt I was wondering, and man. whitney dude man I, that's crazy man they really went all out for these yes <laughs> pratt and whitney? the uh you sure they didn't use like the micro turbo encabulators on these ones? Yeah, it was the they used the uh, Intel uh, four thousand four process microprocessor on those things. So. <laughs> oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. It had the the lunar Wayne shaft on it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, the doobie gotcha. scoop. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> but <laughs> you didn't you guys, have, wait. It didn't. This model didn't have the X twenty six Earth Rounders. No, no, no. Oh, it yeah. had a, a, a pre-famulated plate of amulite with the two <laughs> spurving bearings. It's the one to, you know, those to, are heavier. To prevent side yeah, fumbling. Yeah, yeah, those are heavier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you guys would recognize these jets. Oh, would we? You would. Yep. You would look, so now you, you can go to your local airport and be like, that's a 727. Because two engines on the side, behind the wings, on the fuselage, and then the third uh, Pratt and Whitney turbofan engine mm-hmm. would be mounted at the tail, and then it had the air intake where the uh, tail fin was. They're mm-hmm. pretty recognizable. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank yeah. You. The retro turbo encapsulators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, DB Cooper boarded flight 305, which was scheduled to take off at 2:50 p.m and would proceed to his seat towards the rear of the cabin. Witnesses would describe him as being in his mid-40s, wearing what you could describe as the men in black suit, and then ordered a bourbon and soda while he waited. And have you guys seen that sketch of him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
And just some like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. Hey, tell the band to keep it down. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, what is going on with Richard? Needs to get his guy. Yeah, Richard is just uh, going crazy with the music. You know, I think there. it's I think it's Richard. He's fine, but his band. I don't think he knows their thing around here. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they don't know their uh, their levels. Yeah, yeah, levels a little off, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that sketch of him is pretty iconic, honestly. It's just like a, a regular ass old white white guy. Like he's just an older white guy, just regular. And I just feel like in the early seventies, they wouldn't be able to find him even if they knew his real name because he genuinely looked like everyone else at the time. Like just that nice ass fancy, like rusty brown suit that in the seventies would fit right in with the mucus greens and the mustard yellows of the seventies. Mm, you know what I, I mean? Them. Classic, classic yeah, 70s. Classic seventies yeah, colors. And he had like a skinny tie, but it was a clip on tie, but no one knew that until they found it later on. Oh, clip-on tie? Come on, man. Yeah, he had a skinny, it's a clip-on tie, just a skinny little black tie with like a, a pin on it. It had like a little oyster um, like type of thing looking in there. Yeah, that's a that's a cheater pin. That's a cheater that's a pin, cheater tie. Cheater tie. Anyways, flight crew of six. So that's the actual like people flying the plane plus the hostesses in the hot pants. Yeah, he forgot about those hot pants, man. And uh, 37 passengers, including uh, Coop. So about a third full. And the flight departed on schedule. And shortly after takeoff, D.B. Cooper set his plan into action. He approached the nearby flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, and handed her a note. Her thinking it was just a random businessman trying to join the Mile High Club probably placed a note in her bag and didn't think anything of it. And D.B. Cooper, seeing that she didn't even open the note, leaned into her ear and said, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> I'm a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. And uh, she remembers that it was very neatly written in all capital letters, but she couldn't remember the exact wording because D.B. Cooper would take the note back from her. Smart. But <clears throat> let's call him Coop for the remainder of the episode. Saying D.B. Cooper, just too much words. Mm-hmm. So Coop. Coop would take the note back. But Schaffner distinctly remembers it saying he has a bomb on board the plane. Coop would then ask Schaffner to come sit next to him. And she asked, hey, can I see the bomb? Because that's what your go-to is. Yeah. <laughs> you got a bomb? Can I, I, I s- think you're full of shit. Yeah. Let me see your bomb. Can I see it? Oh my gosh, you have a bomb? Can I see it? <laughs> <laughs> is it real? Is it Where'd what? You- Did you make it yourself? <laughs> those retro turbo encapsulators? Oh it's so hot. In any case, Coop obliged, opened up the briefcase for just a split second, enough for Schaffner to see that There were eight red cylinders, four on top of four, with red insulated wires attached to a large cylindrical battery. Like like a straight up Looney Tunes bomb, dude? Exactly. Red cylinders. Yeah. Was there like an alarm clock tied to the top? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You have a picture of like Wile E. Coyote on it? Yeah. And it said TNT on the side. (laughs) Acme products. (laughs) Dude, for real though, the way she describes it is like what a person who had never seen a homemade bomb would think what a homemade bomb would look like. Like, just like you're saying, just a cartoon thing. So when Schaffner, yeah. when she described the bomb to the FBI, they were like, eh, 
that probably wasn't a real bomb because <laughs> first of all, dynamite is like a brown color. It's like a brownish color. So I totally get it. It doesn't matter that it wasn't a real bomb that this guy, he seemed cool and collected and he knew what he wanted, but it doesn't matter that it, yeah. it was, what does she know? She's not gonna take that chance. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. So, I'm going to call someone out and be like, hold on a second. Do it. Blow it up. I want to see you blow up. Yeah, Do it. Yeah. I know my bombs <laughs> yeah. and this is not a bomb. I dare you. <clears throat> now, he had some demands. $2,000, I wish. $200,000 in, quote unquote, negotiable. Negotiable. Am I saying it right? Yeah, negotiable. 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 There we go. Mm-hmm. American currency. And that wording uh, ends up being important during the investigation because um, he did just ask for $2,000. Yeah, I want to know what he meant. I wish, I wish they would have caught him. I want to know what he meant. Like, yeah. isn't, does he mean... <clears throat> He would take like any like diamonds, gold, like whatever they had. Is that what he means? I, I, like anything ban- that yeah, it could be bonds or whatever. As, yeah, as American currency. Hmm. Two hmm. two hundred large. Yeah. Um, he wanted four parachutes, and also a fuel truck on standby to refuel the plane when they landed. And Shafter would then relay the demands to the flight crew. But when she came back, Coop was wearing sunglasses now. <laughs> <laughs> he's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess he just wanted to look like a badass just sitting yeah. in the back I, I can just picture Schaffner like the stewardess or the flight attendant Schaffner coming back and just like like stopping like where's you have glasses now yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it's a little bright in here you had like, she's time? like Coop Coop is that you I can barely recognize you I recognize Coop. you with those sweet shades <laughs> So once the uh, the flight attendant relayed the demands to the flight crew, the pilot, pilot, the, I don't know why I can't talk today. This is bad. You're good. You're good. The pilot contacted the tower at SeaTac to let them know they were hijacked and gave them Coop's demands. And then the tower would then go on to contact local and federal authorities, let them know of the incident, and then the demands that the, the hijacker wanted. And then the flight crew, in order to keep the passengers calm, because no one knew that, that Coop had hijacked the plane at this point. Yeah, they, <coughs> they, they talked through notes and stuff. It was real quiet. Yeah. Um, they fed them false information and that there was going to be a delay due to some minor mechanical difficulties. And once the flight was over Seattle, it had a circle for a couple hours because they had to wait for the FBI to actually arrange the demands, get the money, the fuel truck, the parachute. So... They had a vamp for time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but if the pilot of my flight says uh, we're experiencing some technical difficulties and then proceeds to stay in the air for a long time afterwards, mm-hmm. it would freak me the fuck out. Like, what do you mean there's mechanical difficulties? Aren't you going to land? Like, why are we still in the air? Well, also got to keep in mind, like, probably like half of these passengers are fucking blasted drunk. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, so, like, yeah. they don't even care. They're like, whatever, man. Just keep the booze flowing. I, oh, yeah. It's more I genuinely, yes. I genuinely didn't think about that. Like, it didn't matter. Did because they were, they were just like, they were just like, yeah, okay. I'm just going to keep drinking. You got, you got yeah, free booze, though, right? They, yeah, they didn't yeah. give a fuck. Like, I don't, I'm not paying for it, right? <laughs> then fly. Fly for as long as you need to, man. Just keep it coming. Do another lap. Okay. <laughs> do, another do a flip. <laughs> um, I gotta admit though, their plan it worked, and they were able to stay in the air enough time for the FBI to get the demands together without alarming the passengers. And actually, none of the passengers even knew that they were currently being skyjacked. Um, they ended up telling the passengers that they were just too heavy 
and needed to burn off some fuel in order to land safely. So I guess that's how they ended up saying, we're going to fly for a while because we got to burn some mm. fuel. Yeah. Uh, Y'all meanwhile, a bunch of fatties on this plane. <laughs> got to start throwing people off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We got to. I'm sorry, ma'am in flight uh, 16B. <laughs> it's like a lottery. Yeah. Can, you, can you please make your way to the rear of the airplane? We're about to throw you up. Yes. Uh, so meanwhile, Coop's demands were being met on the ground, and the FBI got together the four parachutes he wanted, two front parachutes and two back parachutes from, uh, it was like a local sport diving place because skydiving wasn't like a huge thing then. Like it, it was around, but it wasn't like popular as it is now. So they had to, right. it was like two towns over that they got this guy to put the parachutes together. And um, the parachutes they got for him were three sporting chutes and one military parachute. And I think this is particularly clever on like Cooper's part because by asking for like two sets of parachutes, a front chute and a back chute uh, twice, he made it clear that he intended to take a hostage with him on his trip out of the plane. And if the FBI sabotaged one set of the shoots, there was no guarantee that Cooper would be the one to end up with the faulty shoots. And the FBI would essentially have murdered a flight attendant. So they didn't play any games and they just gave him what he wanted. Yeah, right. right. All right, we'll give you yeah. the shoots. Yeah, ironically though, one of the parachutes that uh, was given to him was what was called a practice parachute. And basically what that means is that the, the main parachute part of the uh, backpack was sewn shut. So that they didn't have to keep repacking it when people practice pulling the uh, the first shoot, you know, the little tiny one. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they didn't have to when they pulled that, they didn't have to keep repacking it. So it was just completely sewn shut. And one of those was handed to Cooper um, without them even realizing it. So um, the standard um, Air Force parachutes that they were offering him, he didn't want those because he knew that they were the kind that attached to the airplane. And when he jumped out. Uh, it would pull automatically as like it would use a force of gravity to pull it for you and you didn't have control of that. He wanted to control when he actually pulled the cord. Yeah, it's like the <clears throat> classic World War II films when you see the paratroopers jumping out. Yeah. And they just yeah. attach the lineup and just run out the back of the airplane. And it yeah, and then it pulls it for yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, so now that they had the parachutes covered, um, they went to focus on the money. Um, the FBI asked Northwest Orient, the airline, if they had that money. And they're just like, yeah, we got that covered because, like I said, skyjackings were incredibly common. So they had like insurance to cover these just in case. And uh, all Northwest ended up having to pay was about 20000 And the insurance paid the rest of the 180000 They used um, a local bank that had set aside a bunch of money in 20s already. It had been previously been recorded and put together in like random piles to, to make it seem like they had quickly put the money together um, like to make the thief, like if a thief came in to rob the bank, they would just go in the back and get these bills that, you know, they were just quote unquote threw together, and hand it to them as if they were like rushed so that when the people spent the money, they knew that it had been used. But this is also 1971 and it's not like they had computers to scan the bills and, you know, make it so the system was like alerted and flagged every time the money was used. Yeah. So this was like a manual thing, and they actually had to send each individual uh, code of the bills to all the surrounding banks in every country that they wanted to have these serial numbers so they could manually, like, if think about, like, this is probably why they haven't found anything, because who actually is going to take the time to look at every serial number and yeah, then right. report it manually? You know what yeah. I mean? Nah, not doing so, that. I don't get paid enough. 
Yeah. So after they got the money together, they flagged Flight 305 and they cleared them to land. They also had grounded and like rerouted all the other flights in the area so that 305 was the only plane in the air at the time. Yeah, it's kind of like standard hijack shit. Like, all right, ground all flights. Let this guy land. So the 727, sorry, I got a frog in my throat. Landed at SeaTac at 5.39 p.m. And Coop instructed the pilot to taxi to a well-lit section of the airport's apron and close all window shades to stop the peering eyes of police snipers. They didn't want to get his dome piece taken. Yeah, that's that's super smart. Right. And so he was he was right, wasn't he? There were snipers everywhere. Oh, yeah, they. they, Yeah, it it was a hijacked plane. They they didn't mess around with that. Even well lit, you're not going to know where the snipers are at. And so now with the ransom money and parachutes in hand, the SeaTac ops manager, Al Lee, approached the plane. Now, he was smart. He wore street clothes because he didn't want Coop to mistake him for law enforcement if he had his airline uniform on. Mm-hmm. He handed the goods over to another flight attendant, the senior flight attendant, which was Tina McClough, via the aft stairs. So the 727s were equipped and they were pretty much the only plane that had aft stairs, which were, uh, it was a staircase that was directly below the tail of the plane that would drop down. Because most of the time when you board planes now, you board through the side, through the the pilot Mm -hmm. side of the plane. Mm -hmm. Um, But back then they had actual aft stairs. And so that's how Tina was able to uh, uh, get the ransom money and get the parachutes. And once Coop received his money and the parachutes, he allowed the other 36 passengers to evacuate the plane, as well as the flight attendant from before, Schaffner, and the senior flight attendant, Alice Hancock. These uh, aft stairs, that's the main reason he even got on this flight, right? Like he, This is like why he chose this airplane and this flight path. Because mm-hmm. he knew those aft stairs were there, which leads Smile. to a lot, a lot of speculation later on. We'll get into it. But uh, so Cooper knew that these stairs were there the whole time. And what's even crazier is that Tina Mucklow or Mucklow got off the plane to collect the money and the parachutes for Cooper just because he asked her nicely. The thing is, she could have ran out of that plane and just peace the fuck out being, you know, just all right. See you later. I'm gone. Yep. You know, but she, she didn't. She's an incredible woman. And she knew. She was basically sacrificing herself and her own safety for the safety of the passengers. So she got back on the plane because she knew that the passengers would be let go, which is yeah. incredible. It's super inc- and brave and like just that's what's up. You know, like we need people right. like that in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so she gets back on the plane with all of Cooper's demands. And then Cooper signals that it's OK to let the people go. It wasn't until the people got off the plane that they realized the gravity of the situation as they were <laughs> greeted by FBI and police all over the tarmac. Yeah, just, so can you just imagine like get, like walking down the stairs just like, what the and fuck? And you just see the SWAT officers like pointing guns at you like, what? what the get fuck? down, get down, everybody get down. Oh my God, what was happening? Everyone's too smashed to understand. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, what? sweet, bro. Mm. <laughs> So this is where uh, Coop would then discuss the next part of his plan, which would be the flight plan. It would be a southeast course towards Mexico City. And then this is actually where his master plan came into effect because he was smart. He knew what the hell he was doing. He would order the pilot to fly at the minimum airspeed possible before stalling. 
so roughly under 200 knots for that airplane. They were also ordered to fly at an altitude no more than 10,000 feet. And the landing gear was to remain down for the duration of the flight, because that also reduces the airspeed. Wing flaps must be lowered to 15 degrees, again, lowering airspeed, and the cabin to remain unpressurized. Once informed of the flight plan, the co-pilot, William J. Radijak, yeah. informed, yeah, I like that, Radijak, yeah, informed Coop that because of their limited range of 1,000 miles for that specific plane, um, and under his specific instructions, they would need to refuel because all this drag that he's creating with mm -hmm. the flaps down, the landing gear down, it creates drag, loses fuel efficiency, and they would need to refuel before arriving at the intended destination, Mexico City. Yeah, kind of like driving with like a flat tire. It just it reduces your fuel type of stuff. Yeah, it, it'd be like yeah, driving with a couch on your roof. Mm. <laughs> no one's done that? Okay, cool. <laughs> just me just redneck me all right i did a mattress uh, yeah mattress yeah when you got to hold it down with your hands everyone's yeah. got to have two people in, in your yep. car to hold down the mattress so coop and the flight crew uh discussed refueling options and decided that they would stop in reno nevada um to make their final refueling stop before continuing on to uh mexico city this this exchange between the pilots and cooper about where he wants to go is fucking hilarious to me, dude, because the pilots actually never spoke to Cooper face to face. They used Tina Mucklow as like a go between uh, for Cooper and the pilots. So Cooper would tell Tina what to tell the pilots and the pilots would respond via like the overhead intercom. And then Cooper would respond via Tina, just like kept going back and forth. Like a game um, of air, uh, yeah. uh, telephone. Telephone, yeah. So, um, as they were trying to tell Cooper over the intercom that the type of plane they were on didn't have the gas capacity to reach Mexico on one tank from Reno, Nevada, as if Cooper didn't know, like, didn't know that information. I mean, think about it. He told them exactly how fast, what altitude, and at what angle to fly. Basically, like, Cooper was like, bruh, I don't care where you set off to. I just ordered a shit ton of cash, four parachutes. What part of this makes you think that I'm going to be on this bitch when you land? Just fucking fly. I say just <laughs> take off, fool. Get the fuck out of here. Like, I'm not even going to be on here. I don't care where you go. What I ordered a parachute. Like, I'm <laughs> Why going do you to think jump. I have those? Yeah. Just in case you decide you want to crash this damn thing. <laughs> so, yeah, he was just he was just like, yeah, dude, I, just go. I don't care. Yeah. I do what you got to do. It's like you have that coworker that just talks to you about nonsense, and you're like, bro, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Leave, please. Now, his last request would be to have the aft stairs lowered <clears throat> during, like, lower them down, take off, and we'll have them lowered during the flight. But the SeaTac officials said they could not safely take off with the stairs down. And avoiding argument, he agreed to have the doors or the stairs um, secured for takeoff and would later open it during flight. But Coop seemed to know his research on the 727, as we said before, knowing the altitude, the flight speed, having the flaps down, knowing that there were aft stairs, because he knew it was possible to take off with the aft stairs down. And he only agreed to have them stowed for, for takeoff because the flight crew told him, like, dude, we'll just show you how to do it mid-flight. Like, <laughs> Motherfucker, why did you say that before? <laughs> we could have just saved all this fight. Just tell, just, why? Just... We, why were you holding that information yeah. from me? <laughs> so now that everything had been taken care of, he had his money, the parachutes, 
and a pretty well thought out flight plan. The 727 took off from SeaTac at 7.40 p.m. with Coop, the pilot, William A. Scott, the co-pilot, Mr. Radijak, a flight engineer, again, the name William. Were you on this flight? <laughs> I, I, I must three, have been. Three must Williams. Have been, must have been William Scott. conceived on this damn flight. <laughs> William yeah, Scott, flight. William Radijak, and flight engineer, flight engineer William. William. Podcaster William. Yeah. It all Wilhelm, Wilhelm, Wilhelm. <laughs> I'm the passenger of Wilhelm from Germany. You guys going to boost? Uh, yeah, are we going to Germany to get boosted? <laughs> and finally, the flight attendant Mucklau. Little to Coop's knowledge, the nearby McCord Air Force Base started scrambling the birds to intercept the hijacked plane. They had two F-106 fighter jets falling behind the airliner. One would be above, one would be uh, below. And Coop wouldn't notice their presence because he couldn't look out the windows and see them. There also happened to be a Lockheed, 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 idiot, T-33 trainer aircraft, which they used to train fighter pilots in that happened to be flying in the the area for the uh, Air National Guard. They diverted that... um, that T-33 to the incident to shadow the 727. And eventually it would run out of fuel and needed to break off. So now it was just a two uh, F-106 uh, interceptor jets. Well, no, the thing about scrambling all these aircraft uh, to monitor the situation is that Cooper gave very detailed instructions to fly. So at around 210 miles per hour. So these two jets that were sent up were above and below, right? So they were just circling around the plane because it was going so slow. They, they would pass it going really fast because jets can't go that slow. They have to. So they were just yeah. they were just like, woo, just like passed by the airplane. And, I'm a peacock. You got to let me fly. Yeah. <laughs> and they would just like circle around. They would just keep doing that. Just like try to keep like the above and below, but they, would, they couldn't, they were too fast. So they were just like pass by real quick and they would circle around and they kept doing this. Um, and there was also, it was a stormy night and visibility was minimal due to the cloud cover. So it was, chances of seeing something is real low considering how fast you're going. And you know, the, it's not good conditions to see anything. Yeah. The, they also though, they also had a, the main FBI guy, like the lead investigator, he had, he boarded a helicopter to tail them. So he took off from the same um, airport and, but it's a helicopter. And even though this low flying plane was, is still going over 200 miles per hour. So it left the helicopter in the dust. So we have a too slow helicopter and, too fast jet tailing this thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like you guys saw that police chase where the uh, the Hellcat. Yeah, I did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was a while ago, but it's the same yeah, thing. It's like just kept oh, going. you think your freaking Crown Victorias are going to keep up with a freaking Hellcat, seven hundred horsepower Hellcat? Get the fuck out of here. Get your life. <clears throat> so now that Coop is all alone on the jet because he ordered the flight attendant Mucklau to join the rest of the flight crew in the cockpit but not before she saw him tying that bag of cashola around his waist. And about 20 minutes after takeoff, there was a warning light that started flashing in the cockpit that alerted the crew that the aft stairs had been activated, meaning unlocked. And co-pilot Radijak, noticing that warning light, reached out to Coop via the intercom system asking, hey bro, do you need any help lowering the stairs? Coop said, Enough is enough! I have had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane! 
And that was the uh, the last interaction that the crew would have with Coop. <laughs> they're, they're like, wait, what snakes, dude? Where yeah. the fuck is snakes? Wait, what you brought snakes? snakes? Pour, yeah, he just poured a bag of snakes as he left. <laughs> Good luck. Oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> Shortly after that exchange, at uh, 8.13 p.m., uh, the aircraft's nose pitched down so dramatically that the pilot needed to readjust the trim to keep the uh, the flight level because they were just going to crash straight into the ground. Right. But this alerted them that the actual aft stairs had been deployed because it's know, all it's, about aerodynamics, right? You know what's crazy about why they reached out to him in the first place is because they reached out because they, they were terrified that as Cooper was going to exit the craft, he would blow the plane up so there would be zero witnesses. And they wanted to try to be as helpful as possible. So when they went over the intercom, I was like, uh, do you, do you need any help or do you need anything from us? And he was just like, no, nah, there's snakes on your plane now. Um, <laughs> they, they wanted to be on his good side and they wanted him to not blow the plane out of the sky. <laughs> yeah. So like they were trying to be super nice, like super helpful, like anything they could do to not be blown to bits. So the reason that they even thought this was a thing was because during their pit stop to gather uh, the parachutes and the money, um, FBI had tried to do like a quick like 20 minute profile on dan cooper you know how the fbi likes to do that with their serial killers and stuff oh yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. and they, this profile said that dan cooper would blow them up the first chance he got so that there'd be no witnesses so he they're telling this to the pilots and, and to the people involved like yeah yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. He, what he's gonna do is he's gonna blow up blow you guys up as soon as he can so yeah, i can just shit. picture like i can just picture like the flight crew like after they felt like the plane shift was like uh go check if he's back there and she was like no no you go like no you, you go check like what was that go find what out what that was like you go check it out i'm not going to check it out there's snakes right. back there let's pull through yeah, yeah I, don't, pull I don't like snakes he said something about snakes <laughs> don't care about the bomb <laughs> and he's broken <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, broke Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> there he goes. And let's just, he's gone. Let's just, let's just wait it out. Well, let's just wait it out. He'll come back. Yeah, he'll come back. Oh, man. Ah, there oh, we go. Man. All right. So. <laughs> <laughs> at about uh, 10 15 p.m., the 727 landed at Reno and was promptly surrounded by FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff deputies, and the Reno police. They wouldn't know it yet, but Coop would be nowhere to be found. And after a thorough search of the aircraft, the flight crew's suspicions were solidified. D.B. Cooper had vanished as quickly as he appeared. $200,000 richer, and only took two of the four parachutes. His choice of parachutes was peculiar, to say the least. Um, and this led people to speculate a lot about if Cooper was actually a professional skydiver or if he didn't know jack shit about parachuting at all. Because of the four parachutes, he had completely gutted the really good one to use uh, the paracord to tie the money to himself. And it, this is actually it's actually possible that this is what Tina saw him doing as she closed the curtains to uh, first class um, when she looked back for the final time. Um, he left one whole parachute uh, just completely intact and he used the military chute as his main parachute and the training parachute that had the main pocket sewn shut as his backup parachute 
So his choice of military parachute as his main one made people believe he was possibly a paratrooper. And as weird as his choices were, maybe he made like the completely the right choices because the temperature that night was freezing. It was freezing cold. And at 10,000 feet, God damn, the, temp- cold. the temperature was like negative seven degrees just in the air. But with the 200 degree, 200 mile per in, uh, 200 mile per hour winds, it could easily have felt like negative 80 degrees. And he was jumping out into this. So damn cold. So the thing about the military shoot, though, is that it's not easily controllable like a like a sport parachute is like you can't like go left and right like as easily because it was meant for uh, like war conditions. Right. Like you were saying earlier, like jumping out of a plane into fucking hostile territory. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was sturdier and they the color of it would mean that even if the slow ass helicopter or the fast-ass jets happen to be at the right place at the right time to see him jump, how likely is it that they would see a dude in, like, a dark suit and a camo parachute just floating there? Uh, true. They would have zero, zero chance of seeing that dude. Yeah, it's this tiny little guy with a, 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 what's meant to be a not-seen parachute. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. There would actually be a ballad that was written about Coop's daring escape. It goes a little something like this. <laughs> Out a little service doorway in the rear of the plane, Cooper jumped into the darkness, into the freezing rain. They say that the wind chill was 69 below. Giggity. <laughs> <laughs> Not much chance that he'd survive, but if he did, where did he go? Now where you have to. Where did he go? Where did he go? Because you have to understand the terrain that he plunged into. Southwest Washington, never been there. Fucking lakes, whitewater rapids, super thick forest. Is that with two C's or three C's? Uh, <laughs> three C's. Thick. Yeah, so thick. Thick. Thick forest. Thick. And also the hunting grounds for cougars and bears. So on paper, Bullshit. older women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And gay guys, older, women, older women and gay guys. Uh, yeah, older women and really hairy gay guys. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying inside <laughs> <laughs> a chance nope yeah and on paper this fbi was like dude this guy doesn't stand a chance there's no way yeah he got eaten by yeti aliens, <laughs> yeti aliens. <laughs> no 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 seriously though no seriously though some people actually think he got got by bigfoot because cooper landed in like bigfoot's backyard like this is where bigfoot's from so people, it's a legitimate thing. People really think this. Like, oh Bigfoot's God. out there and they got Dan Cooper. They got Dan, wow. not Dan, not DB. Come on, man. <laughs> so let's dive into the investigative stage of the story because shit gets really weird. Remember this dude literally just disappeared with $200,000 and people are pissed. The FBI would start a massive manhunt, scouring the forests, searching for this elusive D.B. Cooper. On the actual 727, they found 66 unidentified latent fingerprints or fingerprints they were actually able to pull. His black clip-on tie, some tie clips, and also two of the four parachutes. With one of them that had apparently been opened and had the shroud lines cut, those are the lines that connect the canopy to the actual harness. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering what shroud lines were. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No Trust idea. Me, yeah. Those are what those are. Okay. The more you know. <laughs> Authorities would then go on to interview witnesses in Portland, Seattle, 
in Reno and pieced together some composite sketches of Coop, but they were still basically chasing a ghost. Yeah, that that's that famous um, D.B. Cooper with the glasses on. Yeah, uh, that they, sketch. Yeah, and what's what's cool about that is that uh, Tina Mucklow and uh, Schaffner had given that description, the same description to authorities in two different cities at two different times. And they both agreed that this is what the guy looked like. So they, they actually think this is really, really accurate uh, depiction of Dan Cooper. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like I said, they, they weren't talking to each other. They were in completely different cities at different times. And they both gave the same description of this guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they, they pretty much nailed it when it came, came down to the, mm-hmm. uh, the sketch of him. Yep. <clears throat> now, the first lead that FBI used was the name he gave at the ticket counter, Dan Cooper. And they managed to locate a man with, that had some minor runs in with the law by the name of D.B. Cooper and thought maybe the hijacker used his real name to purchase his ticket. He just so happened to live in Oregon and authorities were quick to question him. And although this would be a dead end, uh, an overenthusiastic reporter would go on to confuse this possible suspect with the pseudonym used by the hijacker and D.B. Cooper would was born. And yeah. that would be the name the public would go on to recognize, D.B. Cooper. Yeah, yeah but D.B. Cooper, like the actual D.B. Cooper, was like a regular like cat burglar in the area, wasn't he? He was just like a regular common thief. Mm-hmm. And the FBI had fingered him because he was already known as a thief. And the FBI likes to finger a lot of people. So I was just about to say, like, yeah, <laughs> just lots of fingering. Lots of so fingering. Much, I mean, what, they fingered like 800, 800 to 1,000 people for this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, there yeah. was so many suspects on this one. Yeah, so they narrowed it down to like 24, but the, the FBI was adamant that whoever this Dan Cooper was, he was like a hardened criminal. And, and the, for some reason, they never even considered that the Skyjacker was like a regular guy who just like snapped or something, or, or even just like a thrill seeker who just wanted to see if he could do it to do it. They, they thought... It couldn't be anybody else but like a hardened like criminal who already had run-ins with the law. Right. So when they were discussing this D.B. Cooper guy, the cat burglar, as a possible suspect, there was a, like a news reporter basically eavesdropping on the conversation. And he overheard them saying that this D.B. Cooper was probably their guy. And he looked good for it. And the news person who was listening, they jumped on this name and they spread D.B. Cooper far and wide. And that's why instead of the legend of Dan Cooper, we have the legend of D.B. Cooper. Wait, so you're saying the news jumped on some faulty information just to be the first ones to get a headline out? That's never happened ever. That has never happened ever. The news would never lead us astray. What? That is outrageous. Uh, Honestly, though, (laughs) this probably helped the the FBI's investigation. Because if ever there was like a tip or someone, they would know whether or not to take it seriously if they use the name Dan or DB. So mm. it just kind of helps suss out information coming in. Like if they said that it was right. Dan Cooper, like, all right, this is probably legit in some way. If they use mm-hmm. DB Cooper, just like, oh, they probably saw it on the news or something. Yeah, They're right, just... right. They're not hip to the, uh, to the actual shit. Yeah, they're not hip to the real facts. It's just fake news. <laughs> fake news. Age. <clears throat> so once <laughs> once they realized Coop had parachuted out of the back of the plane like some Mission Impossible shit, they needed to recreate the flight pattern and figure out where he may have landed. Now, his exact landing area was really hard to pinpoint due to some slight differences in altitude, the wind speed, direction, and environmental conditions because, again, it was really stormy that night. So they had this really broad-ass area to look in. 
which just so happened to be deep in the forest of Endor. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that coming. I thought because he was so serious. He was so serious. I was just like, oh, the fourth. Oh, the motherfucker. Oh, like, God just... damn it. Endor. Oh, man. I can't believe you've done this. Oh, you've done it. so they actually had the pilot scott william scott follow the same flight pattern while fbi agents threw a 200 pound sled out of the back of the same type of airplane to try and recreate the same nose dip and the possible area that coop may have parachuted into following this experiment they were able to narrow down the landing area to be on the southernmost area of mount saint helen and near an artificial lake named Lake Merwin. Local authorities would conduct a lengthy search of this area on foot, searching the wilderness with search parties and also with the help of helicopters. And Lake Merwin was searched thoroughly by boat and any habitable buildings in the area were turned over like a prison cell strip search. And yet they found jack shit. The FBI even enlisted the help of the Oregon Army National Guard to search the flight path with fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters all the way from Seattle to Reno. And although they did find some items of interest, some plastic pieces and some other objects that may have been part of a parachute canopy, they couldn't tie them to the actual hijacking. There was actually a private marine salvage firm electronic explorations company because that sounds like a marine salvage firm they even launched their own privately owned submarine to dive down to the depths of lake merwin in search of any evidence that could help with the investigation in the spring of 72 the fbi with the help of the local military located at fort lewis would conduct a search and rescue mission which would arguably be the most intensive search in u.s history and they say search and rescue, but it's mostly the search part of it because that local military was great at searching wilderness areas because they're in the forests. It's their backyard. They already yeah. Know it. yeah, they 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 know how to 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 search. And to throw a wrench in this whole story, two women who were participating in the search party happened to stumble upon a skeleton in a since abandoned um, building. The remains would later be identified as Barbara Ann Derry, a teenager who was abducted and murdered only weeks before. Mm-hmm. And even after this lengthy and extensive search, the FBI still didn't have any definitive evidence leaking any real person to the hijacking. That sucks, man. I mean, God, I, God this, I'm glad that uh, Cooper's search led to finding this body because imagine, oh, yeah. if, imagine if they hadn't like, they even searched the area for D.B. Cooper extensively, but it seems like they only searched like the wooded, like flat areas and not really the buildings or anything because these are these two women are like regular women and mm-hmm. they just happened to search that, that, that uh, like it's like an aqueduct, right? Something like that. Yeah, it was it was like a, a long since. Yeah, defunct. Yeah. yeah. But like that sucks, man. This this woman or teenager. Yeah, uh, that's rough. I'm, I'm glad yeah, they found her. I'm glad they found her body, but. You know. Yeah, I mean that's why like that's why I said shit gets weird. You're, yeah. you're trying to search for some guy that hijacked a plane and f- ended up finding a teenager that was abducted and murdered only weeks before. Yeah, it's just like happenstance. Mm-hmm. But in February of 1980, there was a new break in the case. There was an eight-year-old 
who found three packets of the ransom cash while vacationing on the Columbia River at the well-known Tina Bar. Might be well known to them. I have no idea what the fucking Tina Bar is. <laughs> it's like a it's a sandbar. It's oh, a okay. sandbar that it's kind of like a beach area. Oh, okay, for the river oh, rats. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is roughly nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington. And although the bills themselves had mostly been destroyed by water, they were still being held together by the same rubber bands that held the ransom money together when they were given a coop. Oh, shit. And the FBI would confirm that the bills were the same ones given a coop at SeaTac because the serial numbers were in the exact same order as when they were given a coop. Because remember, they stacked them in a certain yeah. order, per se. Mm-hmm. And only they knew the order. And so when they found these, when this kid found the stacks, they matched up perfectly. And there would be a lot of speculation on how the money ended up that far down the river, whether it was from animals or there was a dredging operation on that stretch of the river. So it's still a little inconclusive on, on how it, how it got. Yeah. How it, the hell did it get that far down there? Yeah. Cause, yeah. cause where that kid found the money was like, a good 20 miles from where they initially thought Cooper would have landed in their initial investigation. Like it was like 20 miles away from the flight path. And um, he, uh, this could have been for several reasons that it was so far away. Um, In 1971, pilots didn't have like GPS to trace their like exact route and their exact location. uh, Like we do now, they had uh, like a much more primitive location system that, that was like a ping system of different towers so that you could get like the gist of the flight plan, but nothing exact. So even the pilot, the original pilot, uh, William Scott, who took, he took the FBI in the path uh, that he did the night with Cooper. And he said he could have been off by a few degrees, um, which in an investigation like this, every little detail is just super incredibly important. So oh, especially yeah, when you're flying a plane, like yeah, any minor deviation would change. The yeah. A, completely. a oh, few yeah, two degrees, d- two degrees is like is a couple miles. Yeah. 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 So like the super important. And I think he even like admitted, like, I don't think this is a path that we were on. This is just like the gist, you know what I mean? So they're speculation all around, but the money could also have ended up where it did because of the water currents or even more likely it was that it was dredged up from a different river and deposited onto Tina bank because the fact that the money was still somewhat intact, like it had holes in it and stuff, but it was still, you could tell what it was and the rubber bands were still intact, it means they were probably buried and being preserved by the soil that it was in. Because this is eight and a half years later. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think money out in the open uh, with the, all the elements, I think it lasts like a year, year and a half before it just is gone. So this is being preserved somewhere. Um, Somehow, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, and a side note, though, about the found money. Um, the family decided to turn the money over to the authorities, which ended up being a good thing because it did end up belonging to db cooper and uh however the family didn't get to keep any of that money because the insurance company who had fronted the money said it belonged to them so the family has to take it to the courts and the judge eventually just split the money between the insurance company and the family and left a few for the fbi records and in 2008 that same kid that found the money he sold 15 of his bills at auction for thirty-seven thousand dollars Jesus Christ. And also one thing I didn't add, but I just remembered um, because you said it in your part, Will, is uh, Mount Mm St. Helens. Mount St. Helens erupted in November of 1980. So that whole area, if there was evidence, could just be gone. Oh, yeah. 
covered in soot and ash and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, just wiped mm-hmm. out. Yeah, yep. so it didn't occur to me until you said Mount St. Helens. I'm like, oh, that shit erupted like shit after this. It blew up. If there was evidence, it's probably gone. Yeah. Can you imagine selling 15? They're $20 torn bills. $20 T- torn bills. Up. Yeah, they're torn up $20 bills too. For $37,000? Yeah, because he had, it- he had the FBI like uh, certify them and put them in like this is D.B. Cooper's money certified yeah. by the FBI. So was it all sold to like one a specific buyer? I think it, like I think it was. I think it was one person. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, someone, so, someone wanted a collection of cold cases and this happened to be a little bit of history right there i bet you they checked i bet you they checked those serial numbers from the money that bought the money <laughs> you know, like here's <laughs> db cooper's to buy db cooper's money to buy db cooper's money <laughs> yeah. it's like, wait a minute. right under our nose <laughs> yeah <laughs> but there was speculation from the fbi right out of the gates that coop may not have even survived the jump <laughs> just straight up just, straight just down. like no, oh, I, see you later. I, no he did <laughs> Because the amount of precision that was needed to find a safe landing spot in that thick wilderness, jumping into Endor at night, and even if he did manage to successfully deploy his parachute and land in one piece, because even at minimum airspeed, they're still going fast. Still going fast. Mm -hmm. And at night, you're just getting tumbled around and having to pull your ripcord. Also... It was wintertime in Washington. The shit was cold. We already talked about how, what it would have felt like 10,000 feet up. There was snow everywhere. And he wasn't even dressed for a romp in the mountains. Now, he had that suit on. He had uh, his glasses. Yeah. That's it. Just a suit and glasses. And he had That's like a loafers on, right? Like, yeah, freaking loafers. loafers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, so... <laughs> Yeah, that, that's why a lot of people just like he didn't even make it out. But like, where is his body? Where is any evidence? Like mm-hmm. they would have found a skeleton with the parachute attached to it. You know what I mean? Like, right. None of that. Um, but what's crazy is uh, even though skyjacking, it was not a new thing at all. This has been happening essentially like once a week since 1968. So after Cooper's daring escape, whether that be by getting dead or getting away, it inspired no less than 15 different skyjackers to do exactly what he did like they just followed his footsteps completely oh yeah yeah they they were out for the uh the insurance money yeah they asked for parachutes and they jumped out of the damn airplane and something called the cooper vane also known as the dan cooper switch is a device that keeps the aft stairs locked from the outside on the 747 so that they can no longer be opened mid-flight from the inside hmm. so that yeah. he inspired you know a couple different changes Changes, yeah. What's oh, yeah. crazy is though they didn't even um they didn't even get like the what we know today as security that didn't happen after this they still I think that was like 1984 or something like that when they actually like oh you should probably get your ID you know yeah because before they didn't have um, um searches like yeah. we do today where you got to go through metal detectors and they got to check your luggage yeah. and following this I, I don't know if it was 1973 ish. It wasn't immediately afterwards, which is crazy to me. Like, no, if this happened, if this happened, you would think like, shit, we should probably get checks and information right from the start. But they didn't. They waited. Just no. They continue to to let yeah Yeah. continue to let these things happen before they're finally like, hey, um, we're going to inspect everyone's luggage from now on and make sure they're not carrying guns because a lot of the um, um, 
hijackings that occurred in in 1971 weren't as peaceful as troopers. Oh, yeah. They had guns. They, the pilots they had, had gun- and they go to Cuba. They had fucking hand grenades. They bring oh, a yeah, hand yeah. grenade onto I a plane. I heard that story, dude. I heard that one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they didn't it's even check like, people's luggage. Just I have grenade. With a fucking hand grenade. I have grenade. Go Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> now. <laughs> um, and they didn't have the air marshals. The air marshals they actually started shortly after all these hijackings. They're like, ah, oh, we should probably put some uh, cops in the air. Yeah, but even the air marshal program was not as successful as they thought it was going to be. No. Like they, but, how do you get an air marshal in every flight across the entire United States? Yeah, it's it's kind of sporadic. But with the in, installation of the um, searches of mm. uh, um, baggage and and people that are boarding the plane, they like I think they dropped and stuff. Yeah, there were only like two other hijackings that occurred after they started that program. So it yeah obviously dropped it down significantly. Yeah. Yeah. But in any case, the FBI announced that they were going to be suspending the active investigation of the hijacking in July of 2018, which would be concluding a 45-year-long investigation with a 60-volume case file. Crazy. So much. That's so much information. 45 years. Yeah. But I think they they closed it. They're not actively investigating it. The FBI still has it, quote-unquote, open. If yeah, you yeah. have valid information, if you have yeah. provable, tangible information, they will accept it from you and look into it. Yeah, but because they're pe- not. People have found parachute um, parachutes all over the place, but then the ones they gave Cooper were like a specific blend of synthetic and, you know, whatever else. And the ones that they found don't match that at all. Mm. So if you have like anyone out there who actually listens to us, if you have any information, talk to the FBI. They're still listening. It's still a, a cold case. It's still open. They're just not actively investigating it anymore. And if you find $100,000 in your floorboards, check the serial numbers. Check the serial numbers. Yeah. <clears throat> was but, that a thing on Reddit recently? Like yep. it was. Yeah, that's why I mentioned it. Someone had found a couple hundred thousands of dollars in their floorboards. And I even commented on there and said, hey, check to see if it's Stevie Cooper's. Yeah, man. Like, oh, man. $100,000 just in your floorboards. Bro. I'm going to go check my floorboards. <laughs> Rip all of them. Right I'm mean, just digging right into the, the yeah. roof of my downstairs neighbor. It's worth it, Brian. You'll pay for the damages later. Yeah. Yeah. No, I got my hundred thousand. I'll pay for yeah, your yeah. stupid freaking ceiling, you idiot. Exactly. Dumb dumb. Anyways, I'm gonna turn it over to Brian. He's our local Sherlock Holmes. And uh he's gonna give us his research into the FBI's possible suspects and why they were pertinent suspects uh for the case. All a thousand of them, all like all yeah. one thousand. Yeah, this is going to be the longest episode to date. Yeah, we're going to be covering every one thousand of these suspects. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to be doing the top five. So, um, yeah, we're going to talk about the top five who done it um, or the suspects. And so, I've been kind of reading around, and, and I saw that this case might have been solved uh, recently. But- I did see that, but. It's- I didn't see anything conclusive. It was weird. It says, oh, we solved it. It was like a, mm-hmm. a Facebook thing. It's like a bait, clickbait type thing. We yeah. solved solved DB Cooper's shit. But I'm just like, I don't think you did. Yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of the same thing of like the, the Dyatlov Pass, you know, kind of situation where oh. they just maybe wanted to close it like once and for all. Like say, yeah, this this is how it happened. All right, we're done, you know. Like <laughs> yeah. Closed. So we right. may never know, you know, who really, who really done it. So. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, let's talk about the usual suspects. 
Um, and these are not listed in any particular order either. So um, suspect number one, Kaiser Soze. Kaiser Soze. <laughs> Kaiser Soze. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, uh, Walter R. Rica. So he's the suspect number one. Um, and with Walter R. Rica, there is considerable circumstantial evidence linking Michigan native Walter R. Rica to the D.B. Cooper case. One, he was a military veteran and a member of the Michigan parachute team. And in 2008, he confessed that he was D.B. Cooper. So that's it, folks. Case closed. <laughs> we solved this one. Back to you, Will. All right. Good episode, guys. Um, thanks, Brian. Yeah, we're, no, we're thanks for, that one thanks for joining us on this episode of uh, Who Done It. Um, <laughs> this guy, this guy said, it. this guy said he did it. So that's it. That so he did to it. Take his word at it. He said it. So that's man, the way. <laughs> that was easier than I thought. Yeah, it was super easy. <laughs> but in all ser- seriousness, um, Walter Arica confessed that he was DB Cooper to his friends and his colleagues. Um, one in particular named Carl Lauren. Uh, and guess what? There was a recorded conversation. You were a wire? Um, um, no, actually. So this wasn't done without Rika's knowledge. Mm. Um, Rika actually allowed his buddy to record or tape their conversations, um, which produced new details about what had happened. So Lauren also got permission from Rika to share his story, which he did after Rika's death in 2014. Please tell me that the yeah. recording starts with what happened was. Yeah. Well, you see, it so, started uh, off. <laughs> what happened was I jumped out of an aeroplane. And, uh, there was a bunch of snakes there. Uh, <laughs> I got out of there hot quick. <laughs> so Lauren concluded that he landed near Clay Ullum, Washington. And he met a man that had given Rika a ride on the night he had parachuted out of the plane. So the a man. Funny sentence, sorry. Mother yeah. man. There's <laughs> a man of name. Ray Ray. Now you're a man. A man. So the man who was a Clay Alum native, uh, he recognized Rika from a photo that Lauren had sent him. And Lauren took all the information and his recordings to principal media. Uh, they then hired some consultants to run some tests to make sure that the recordings were genuine and they, they hadn't been tampered with. And so at that point, the media outlet released a documentary which tracked the investigation in July 2018. So mm-hmm. that's Walter R. Rica. So he, there's tapes kind of, you know, detailing what he talked about. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, you know, kind of separate things like he was, uh, you know, what's it called? A military veteran as oh, well yeah. as a Michigan <clears throat> parachute team. So there's a lot of different things theories that kind of link him to the case makes now, sense yeah so suspect number two um, would be richard mccoy jr now mccoy jr is or was often referred to as the best db cooper copycat hijacker and in april 1972 he used a paperweight that looked like a hand grenade, just like we were talking about a little bit earlier. <laughs> Got a grenade! <laughs> so he also had an empty handgun to take control of the United Airlines flight from Denver to San Francisco. He asked for $500,000 in cash and four parachutes. Once the airplane was back in the sky, he jumped out over Provo, Utah where I currently live. Oh, wow. (laughs) So McCoy was subsequently caught and given a 45-year sentence immediately (laughs) as he landed. (laughs) Was he really? Yeah. yeah, 
yeah, they caught him immediately. <laughs> so <laughs> then in 1974, uh, McCoy and several others broke out of the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary by crashing a garbage truck through the main gate. Nice. Now, three months later, I know, this right? This guy's fucking gnarly. You ever, you ever wanted to escape prison? You just drive through the garbage front door, truck. apparently. Yeah, so three months later, he was found and killed in a shootout with the FBI. This guy is, now, this guy is nuts. Pretty intense, dude, yeah, right? dude. <laughs> Stole 500000 from an airplane the way D.B. Cooper did, broke out of prison with the garbage truck, and then got in a shootout with the FBI? This guy? <laughs> yeah. He doesn't fuck around for yeah, sure. So. For sure, this guy was living life. He's like, I only got one life to live. Let's make it great. Yeah, so I got a story to tell. So, now when the rumors started, it was neither confirmed nor denied that he was DB Cooper. There were a number of people who believed that he was DB Cooper, including the FBI agent who killed him. And upon shooting McCoy Jr., the FBI agent said, "I shot DB Cooper at the same time." So that uh, would be Richard McCoy Jr. And okay. ha- having him as a possible suspect. Who is now dead. Who is also dead. Now, suspect number three, William J. Smith. Now, Smith was a World War II Navy veteran who would have been 43 at the time of the hijacking. Now, research gathered by an Army data analyst point to Smith being D.B. Cooper. Now, after the war was over, Smith worked for a railroad company, which in 1970 suffered from crippling bankruptcy. Uh, so there's a motive there. It is believed that Smith developed a grudge against the transportation industry and the corporate establishment, and thus he started plotting the hijacking. So he had gone to school with a Daniel Cooper uh, back in high school, and when they went to the war together, he was killed, Daniel Cooper, in World War II. And this potentially served as an inspiration for his alias. Huh. Uh, so Smith had the necessary training, being able to jump out of an airplane, as well as the knowledge to find like railroad tracks as and uh, might even be able to escape by hopping on the train when he landed. Um, so his resemblance to the artist sketches were described as remarkable. And when approached by the media outlets about it, the FBI refused to comment on Smith. So there's a couple little, little things there, you know, very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, parachute training and also had an escape route being, yeah, a, absolutely. being able to find yeah. a train in the tracks to ride around in that area. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be smart. Yeah. I like so, it. I like it. Yeah. Suspect number four, Kenneth Christensen. Now, Christensen was proposed as a suspect by his brother, Lyle. The man did so after watching a D.B. Cooper documentary in 2003. And while dying, in, dying of cancer in 1994, Kenneth Christensen reportedly said to his brother that there was something that he should know but that he couldn't tell him. I would punch my brother. I don't care if he's dying. Punch him in the fucking face. You got you got something you got to tell me, but you can't. Okay, yeah. get out, die, die. Get out of here. I'm going to take this pillow. Yeah. And I'm going to snuff you out, son. You tell beef. me, you got to tell me something, but they can't tell me. Yeah. Go away. Fuck out of here with that bullshit. <laughs> so after his death, his family found gold coins, 
a valuable stamp collection, and over $200,000 in his bank account. However, it was later found that he had sold off some land, which may have accounted for the large sum of dineros. Like, that's a lot of dineros. <laughs> now, <laughs> Kenneth's age matched the timeline back when he was shorter and thinner than uh, the Cooper dis- descriptions. So, nevertheless, there are a number of similarities to take into account. Now, he was left-handed, he was a smoker, and had a fondness for bourbon, and also had trained as a paratrooper in the army. Hey. One of the flight attendants also said from descriptions she'd been shown that Kenneth resembled Cooper the oh, best. Dude, you just reminded me. One thing we left out completely that's super important is that uh, Dan Cooper asked for a bourbon and soda on the plane. Mm-hmm. Yep. And no, I, I forgot, mentioned it. Did you? Yeah. I, did, I, did, I just forgot. I oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is when everyone's fucked up in, in, in the plane anyway. Oh, so okay. they're, all getting, they're all drinking. So. Yeah, he sat back and got okay. a bourbon and soda. For... I, don't, I didn't hear you say that. Maybe my oh, head yeah, was yeah. Out. yeah, my bad. If you said it, yeah. But it's, oh, that's why the fondness of bourbon is important because Cooper yeah. had asked for bourbon and soda. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, yeah. continue. My bad. And so, yeah, no worries. So <laughs> the, um, you know, the, the flight attendant essentially just kind of pointed out like, yeah, this one kind of looks like him the best and pointed to Kenneth Christensen. Oh. So... He was hired to work as a mechanic for Northwest Orient Airlines. <gasps> what? The company that operated the DB Cooper flight. It's an inside job. Mm. He had a folder full of Northwest Orient news clippings that started from about the time he was hired and oddly enough stopped right before the hijacking. So he continued to work part time for the company after 1971 but never added another news clipping after that. That um, you tell me. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Your thoughts? Thoughts? Well, I was just saying that this is kind of uh, interesting because on that tie that he left behind, the clip-on tie, with mm-hmm. further like newer analysis, they found that there was like rare earth metals attached to it that weren't common at all uh, during 1971, but it was common for someone who worked at an airline. like these metals were commonly used these metals were commonly used to build newer airplanes so you know how do they end up on his tie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of interesting uh, similarities there but you're telling me this motherfucker hijacked a plane parachuted out and then went back to work for the same (laughs) airline company he's gotta keep the charade going man like well yeah because a lot what of happened to Kenneth? People Kill. looked it, when the FBI looked into things. Like they're like, is there anybody saying that someone's missing? Like if you TB Cooper and you're dead or gone with the money to Mexico, wouldn't your family be looking for you? So it's kind yeah. of smart that you would go back because you only work part time. Yeah. Be kind yeah. of smart to continue your life, you know. Normally, yeah, you got him landing exactly. in the wilderness. Fuck yeah! And being like, fuck, what time is it? Ah shit! You gotta go to work. Ah shit! I gotta get to work. <laughs> I don't got any more time off. (laughs) Shit, I'm out of PTO. They're going to fire me for this. Shit. (laughs) So that brings us to suspect number five, Robert Rackstraw. Now, Rackstraw is another worthwhile D.B. Cooper candidate, and he was definitely a man who had a taste for mischief. So he was arrested in Iran in 1978 for explosive possession and check fraud charges. Now, while out on bail... He tried to fake his own death by recording a false mayday 
claiming that he jumped out of an aircraft over Monterey Bay. Now, Rackstraw had also served on an Army helicopter crew during the Vietnam War and bore an uncanny resemblance to the D.B. Cooper sketches. However, he was eliminated as a suspect in 1979 for lack of concrete evidence. But fresh reports emerged in 2016 in a new investigation, which had allegedly obtained new documents under the Freedom of Information Act. Now, this included a letter from the 1971 case that was partially deciphered and was matched to three units Rackstraw had been a part of in the Army. Now, when Rackstraw was approached by amateur investigators, he claimed, I told everybody I was the hijacker. <laughs> he, there you go, case closed. Yep. <laughs> Just like that. And he later said that uh, the admission had been a stunt on his deathbed in July of 2019. So the lack of a confession means that the case will most likely remain an unsolved case. Uh, so in that regard, with all these, you know, these are essentially the top five suspects. There are, of course, more suspects. Um, if you guys listening out there uh, are thinking of someone in particular that we didn't cover, please email us or, uh, you know, reach out to us on our social media to let us know what you think or who is D.B. Cooper. So then that would bring us to what our opinions are. So who done it? Wait, you guys so you're saying it? that Rackstraw... When the FBI, whoever interviewed him, he's like, yeah, I've been telling everybody I'd done it. Where you guys been at? Like, is that yeah. essentially like where, where have you guys? I, 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 everyone knows this. This is common knowledge around here. Yeah, that's essentially what it sounds like. You know, he was just going around. Well, maybe not openly admitting, but if someone did ask him about it, he would just admit that. Like, yeah, he did it. Yeah, it um, yeah, I did it. Yeah. yeah. And then later he would just say that, oh, no, that was just a stump. So, <laughs> no, I was kidding. You know, y'all. Yeah. Y'all fell for that uh, shit? Yeah, you don't. Yeah. But then again, like this guy was, you know, you could only take it with a grain of salt because, again, he was a guy who loved mischief and he was mm -hmm. a guy who would, you know, be doing check fraud and fake his own death. So, gotcha. yeah, yeah so it's hard it's to uh, actually believe that nonsense. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, Will, who do you think did it? <clears throat> I like Kenneth for it. You think Kenneth? I like it. He worked there. He had all the information. He loved bourbon. It just, it adds up, man. It just adds up. Yeah. Then I just like thinking about him running through the freaking Washington wilderness, trying to get back to work. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> shit, shit, I'm late. Shit. It just tickles me. <laughs> I would actually uh, agree with you. I, I, when I was kind of going through these ones, and again, this is only the top five. There are a, like a bunch of other suspects. Yeah, I think there's they fingered a thousand. Yeah, yeah, but I think they narrowed it down to 24 like actual mm -hmm. suspects. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot more that are out there that fit the description. But I definitely, with these ones here, I would definitely kind of lean towards Kenneth Christensen. The main thing being uh, the deathbed confession that just like, I have something to tell you, but <laughs> I am not going to. <laughs> I hate so, that so much. I have a like, lot of... De Niro's. Yeah, I've <laughs> like it's a lot of De Niro's. <laughs> like, like Josh, Josh, if you're listening, if you ever do that, I will smother you. Okay. <laughs> Until you either a die and, or, or b tell, tell me. me. Yeah, tell me. I hope yeah. you tell me. If you if you are so strong enough to like while I'm killing you, not tell me. 
I mean, kudos, dude. But you're still. I don't want to have to torture my own brother. Yeah. Don't yeah. make me get the freaking the pliers and start pulling some nails. Josh is DB Cooper confirmed. <laughs> confirmed. That's it. <laughs> but it just makes sense that Kenneth Christensen would kind of fit the profile. I mean, um, the whole thing with like you know being left-handed—that's a very specific trait in a person. Um, the same thing with the Cooper, uh, the loving bourbon. Mm -hmm. um, and the biggest thing to me is like, like Will said, working at an airline company that actually, you know, he ended up boarding and, you know, taking over. So he already had that intimate knowledge of what the flight was and, you know, how to operate those stairs. And he was a mechanic at that airline. Yeah. So it just makes sense to me. I think it was Kenneth Christensen. Well, Octavia, your thoughts? My thoughts are McCoy Jr. I like McCoy Jr. Richard McCoy, McCoy Jr. Jr. Going out yeah. in a blaze of glory. Yeah, I think um, I, I forgot what podcast it was. I think it might have been uh, uh, shit. I forget, but they, it was two girls and they were talking about this case and they had said that uh, I think it was Richard McCoy. I could be totally wrong. If I'm wrong, let me know. But um, they, she said that basically the guy was like, I'm going to go. He's with his wife. He's like, I'm going to go rob his airplane. And uh, she was like, you're going to go rob this airplane. Oh, you're going to go rob this airplane. Okay. And so she drives him to the airplane to the airport and he's like, I'm doing it. I'm going to go rob the airplane. <laughs> She's like, yeah, you go ahead and rob that airplane. We'll see what happens. You know what I mean? She's like antagonizing and the way that these girls did it. It was, yeah. it was really funny. And it's a different podcast. I'll look it up uh, after this, but I think I, I like him because he asked for 200,000 the first time. Right. Uh -huh. um, and then he asked for 500,000 next time. Like, okay, I got away with 200,000. I'm going to get away with 500,000 this time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, it was Sinisterhood. Sinisterhood is the podcast I was listening to. These, these two girls, and they have a podcast called Sinisterhood. And the way they did it was so funny because it's two girls. So they're just like, yeah, you go rob that plane, hmm. Mr. Big Stuff. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> let's, see, let's see what you, and like, you know, basically a regular marital argument. Like, okay, yeah. go rob oh, that yeah. plane. We'll see what mm -hmm. you got. You know, okay, please? sure. Yeah, yeah, you're going to do it. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. you're going to jump out of the back and parachute down? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're going to ask for $200,000. Maybe you can buy me a new pair of shoes every <laughs> once in a while. Maybe you can yeah. take me out to dinner, honey, because you ain't do that shit no more. <laughs> you, you, don't go, you don't go out the back of planes like you used to. Yeah. <laughs> you don't drop my ass stairs like you used to. <laughs> you don't drop my ass stairs. So anyways, go listen to Sinisterhood if you want to hear those jokes. They're actually really good. But um, the, I also there was also, I forgot, I read about, um, I don't think it was Richard McCoy, but it was someone else. And he took his family like on a vacation uh, to this area of the woods. And he like pointed to like a random spot in the woods. He's like, that's where D.B. Cooper walked out of the woods all those years ago. And like his wife was like, what? Just like, OK, <laughs> you know, and then they, he drove to like a bridge that was there. And he like got out of the car without saying anything and like went to the underneath the bridge to dig something up. It came back. And he had like mud all over him. And she's like, um okay can we go eat something now like i don't know <laughs> but like he just acted real weird on this vacation you know what i mean so yeah. i forgot his day but anyways richard mccoy i think is good for it because it seems like i said i think he's a thrill guy or like someone who has nothing to lose someone who just wants the thrill of fucking i robbed an airplane so he asked for two hundred thousand the first time fuck it five hundred thousand this time and you know the exact same format four parachutes um jumping out of the plane over a certain part and then he breaks out of Prison with Freedom. a garbage truck? The, yeah. And then once he's out, shoot, fuck it. Shoot out with the FBI. Let's do this. Yeah. yeah. You're going to catch me alive, motherfuckers. So, yeah, I think I like Richard McCoy for it just because it's fun. Like, just, this guy's yeah. nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you're, I think your dog's like Richard McCoy, too. Yeah. 
her uh, her leg, her back right leg has been attacking her lately, and she's not a fan of it. Like oh. it, her her back leg was a sneak up on her. Oh, and she's, I hate when that happens. Stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but right. her back leg is just like I'm gonna get you, and she doesn't like it. Mm. Yeah, get you back. Well, dang, man. Well, that was a great case, man. That was uh, really cool. D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. Yeah. Decided to go on the, the lighter side of things. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's fun. Yeah. Hope you guys learned something. And, yeah, Tom, uh, you got anything? Yeah, just uh, send us any more cases of whodunits to uh, letthirstypod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, anchor.fm. Bye. We'll catch you next time. Love you. Bye-bye.